This is uh, actually our last one another that we get to look at together, and um, it's been great. It's, it's interesting, if you recall, that the very first one another that we looked at was the call to love one another. It, it, was the, it is the, the one another command most frequently given in Scripture, and I believe that all of the other one another's that flow out of that are based upon that command to love one another. And in verse 8 of our passage here in 1 Peter 4, Peter says, Above all, as the highest priority, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I'm so grateful that he said, since love covers a multitude of sins. Because as a church, we should not know what it means to love one another apart from the gospel. But notice what he says next. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he starts with our first love one another, or one another, that is to love one another, and he concludes with our last, and this is actually the only occurrence of the word hospitality being connected to one another. And it is a very different one another than any of the one another's that we've encountered so far. Almost all of the one another's in the New Testament are very much directed in to the church, that we love one another, we pray for one another, we care for one another, we prefer and honor one another, we forgive one another. And this one has some implications for inside the church as well. We are commanded here in 1 Peter to be hospitable to one another. But this is the one, one another, that, has, uh, that is so different from the others because it primarily points us outwards. It primarily calls us to look at our relationships outside the church and to exercise hospitality. This is a difficult uh, sermon for me, maybe the most difficult of the one another's to, to study and preach on so far, because there's no large passage in the New Testament that I can analyze and break into points and explain and call you to apply. There is just simply uh, five occurrences of this word, and it's almost never explained. In fact, the statement here to love or to show hospitality to one another without grumbling is the most extensive New Testament ex explanation uh, or even command uh, towards hospitality we get. Uh, so there are um, uh, two of the one another's, 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. Uh, they are specifically about elders, that elders are to be, must be, hospitable. That should give us a clue right away of the importance of hospitality in the mind of the biblical authors. That if a man is not hospitable, he is not qualified to lead Christ's church. The three other occurrences are Romans 12, 13, where we're told to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, where we're told to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then here again, 1 Peter 4, 9, where we're told to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think, I think if we look at the word for hospitality in the New Testament, we get an, uh, a picture of what it is. Hospitality in Greek is a compound word. It's two separate words jammed together to form one new word. The word in Greek is philoxenos, which is the word philos, which is the, the word for friend, and then xenos, which is the word for stranger. 
Hospitality is friend-stranger. It is making friends of strangers. It's interesting to me that the word xenos is the word for stranger here is part of this because one of the great accusations against the church from the world today is that we are xenophobic. And of course, that is the very word where the word xenophobic comes from. Xenophobia being the fear of strangers. And, and it's not so much necessarily that people think we're afraid of people we don't know. It's that the world perceives the church as to, to be afraid of people who are not like them. But what this word is telling us is that hospitality is to make friends of people not only who we don't know, but who also are not like us. It begs the question, do you have friends, do you regularly commune with, sit around the table or a fire or enjoy time with people who are not your age or who voted differently in the last election or who have different hope of the outcome of this election or whose skin color is different than yours or who has different interests and hobbies Do you surround yourself with people who are like you? Or do you seek to befriend those who are not like you? Not so that they might become like you. That's legalism. Legalism seeks to make friends of people so that they might become like me. Hospitality seeks to make friends of people who are not like me so that they might know Jesus. The dictionary definition of hospitality is the generous treatment of guests, the generous treatment of guests. I want to share a story with you, and um, I'm going to ask you to bear with me. I don't like to use long quotes. Uh, This is more of a story than a quote, so uh, I'm going to ask you to do the work of following along as I read a bit of a long story. Uh, This is a book, I've recommended it a lot, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield, and here is her story. She says, July 1997, Syracuse, New York. Going to dinner at the House of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. As an all-out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and soon-to-be-tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. They believed in and manufactured superstitions about sin, which I believed was, as Freud declared, simply a cultural phobia deeply held by dupes whose thinking was manipulated by a universal obsessional neurosis. Thank Freud for that meaningful mouthful. But mostly, Christians just scared me to death. Our worldviews, the moral lens we used to make sense of things, were incommensurable, unbridgeable. But there I was, in their driveway, parking my red Isuzu Amigo truck decorated with my NARAL, that's the National Abortion Rights Action League bumper sticker, and lesbian labrys details. I sat there in my truck, readying myself to knock on the front door. 
I was developing a strategy about how to keep the conversation off of my sin, always a fetish for Christians in my experience, and on the subject of why Christians read the Bible as a literal text, a hermeneutic which I saw was all hands down, sloppy, non-progressive, and dumb. I was a postmodern reader, response critic, and I believed that all literary texts find meaning in the reader's interpretation. It annoyed me to no end when people read literary works against their literary genre, like reading a birthday party invitation under the rules of a sonnet, never arriving at the right place because you can't find the iambic pentameter. Christians assimilate the distinct genre of Bible text into didactic verse-a-day commands. How anti-intellectual. The inherent goodness of self, as Rousseau taught, the priceless progress made by science after Darwin, the advantageous understanding of personhood developed by psychology after Freud, and the equitable socialist culture of economic fairness after Marx all proved to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that human autonomy, leaving consenting adults alone to do what they feel best, is central to human flourishing in a healthy, happy world. That was 1997. It's the same world we live in today, right? Why Christians would not leave consenting adults alone to flourish and be joyful was beyond me. So I sat in my truck in the driveway of this Christian home, musing about, here it is, listen to this, musing about the book I was writing on the religious right and their policies, practices, and narratives of hatred against people like me. To do this, I knew that I had to read the Bible, and I also knew that I needed to somehow get inside the head of a true believer. I believed that only a wacko or an idiot would believe that an ancient book was more relevant and real than the kindness, charity, good practices, open-mindedness, and personal experience reflected in my lesbian community. But I was also a serious scholar, an English professor by training and practice, and I told my students that, that they earn the right to critique only by reading the enemy's books. If you haven't read it, you have no right to interpret it. I, do not, I did not have reading knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, the Bible's original languages, so I knew that I would need to find someone who did. I wanted to leave no stone unturned. I wanted to attack the Bible on legitimate and not straw men's terms. I believe that scholars must be risk takers. We must take the risk of being wrong. We must take the risk of reading things that offend. It is necessary to be this kind of scholar of integrity in order to confront the opposition with respect. So there I was, about to start writing a new book. But first, I had to take on the command that condemned me, called me an abomination, castigated me, and assigned me to an eternity in hell. And how in God's green earth did I get here, parked in the driveway of the enemy, you might ask? The nice Christians who invited me to dinner intrigued me. The pastor, Ken Smith, wrote to me regarding an op-ed I had published in the Syracuse Post-Standard. In it, I opposed the Christian men's movement promise keepers for their backward and misogynistic gender politics and their threat against democracy. I have always read all of my hate mail, call me a masochist, and I came to the conclusion that Ken's letter of opposition was the kindest one I have ever received. I also noticed the fact that Ken had the right pedigree to help me with my research. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I said yes. My motives were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. I considered Ken Smith my potential unpaid research assistant. But the task at hand was daunting, and that is why I sat in my truck so long. 
not quite ready to knock on the front door of, his, of this house and walk across its threshold. Somehow I would have to emerge from this meal understanding the oppressive logic that elevated a dead book above the desires of good people, and I would have to do so without having an emotional breakdown. To be hated for who you are carries insidious violence, and I had been on the receiving end of that before with Christians." Dealing with Christians was toxic work, like deep sea diving. You could stay down there only for so long before the long-term consequences took hold. I wanted to learn why Christians hated me, so I wanted to learn why Christians hated me so, but maintain with integrity my point of view. The prospect made me sick to my stomach. I breathed hard and hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring from my morning run. I waded through the unusually thick July humidity to the front door, and I knocked. That threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night, or the years after, or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was my place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. This Christian home was where I wrestled with my sexual identity and where I first dared to ask the question, is being a lesbian who I really am, or is this how the fall of Adam made me? Is my authentic identity or the distorted... Is it my authentic identity or the distorted one that came through the power of Adam's imputed and original sin to render my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue? Making friends of sinners is an incredibly powerful, or strangers, is an incredibly powerful tool. But far too often, we think that salvation is going to come to people by a quick conversation or an invitation to church or a Facebook ad or a, a mailer. My definition or the dictionary definition of hospitality was the generous treatment of guests. Rosaria Butterfield, the author of that book, her definition of hospitality is this, and I like it so much better. She says, hospitality is using your Christian home in a way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Though the word is rare in the New Testament, the concept of hospitality is all over the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, it looks like greeting one another with a bow or a kiss in Genesis 18 and 19. It's a welcome for a guest to come in in Genesis 24. It's an invitation to rest in Genesis 18 and Judges 4. It is an opportunity to wash and get clean in Genesis 18, 19, and 24. It's provision of food and drink to a stranger in Judges 4 and 19. It's an opportunity to have conversation in Genesis 24. 
It's a provision of security for a stranger in Genesis 19. Israel was absolutely commanded as God's people to be a hospitable nation, to be friendly to foreigners and to strangers. And the whole reason for that is because they were foreigners and strangers in Egypt in Exodus 22 and Leviticus 19, as we see. And in Numbers 20 and in Deuteronomy 23, foreign nations were condemned for their lack of hospitality to Israel. The world around us, it has no idea how to relate to people who aren't like them. And what do we call this? Cancel culture. If you're not like me, I'm just not showing up. I'm just going to cut you off. You know what the church should do? The church should show the world what it looks like to be friends of people who are nothing like us. We should initiate that kindness. When they hate our message, like Rosaria Butterfield, when they hate the message of the gospel, they should be confounded by our incredible kindness, not just to each other, but to them. In the New Testament, Jesus uses the imagery of of hospitality frequently in in parables. I'm not going to go through those right now. I've got a list if you'd like them. In judgment, he said there will be a reward for those who fed the hungry and quenched the thirsty and welcomed the stranger and clothed the naked and cared for the sick and visited the imprisoned in Matthew 25. And he's not saying that any of those earn our salvation. What Jesus is saying is that those characteristics of hospitality towards strangers and towards the downcast should and in fact must characterize his people. And Jesus scolded the Simon the Pharisee for being an inhospitable host. Why? Why is it that this is such a big deal to God? It's because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's because her definition of hospitality, of using your Christian home in a way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God, is patterned off of what Jesus Christ did for us in coming to earth to live in our world, in our home, to be hated by us, to die for us, but so that we could no longer be enemies of God, but be made strangers, or not strangers, but friends, and even through the adoption of God by the Spirit to become family of God. We are to be hospitable to us, or to others, because God has been hospitable to us. He didn't wait for us to be like Him. He didn't wait for us to think like him, act like him, or value the same things as he does. He simply came and exercised hospitality and made friends of strangers and family of friends. But as Butterfield captures in her book here, hospitality builds incredible bridges to evangelism. We don't live in the world that we used to. We don't live in a world where you can invite people to church and they're likely to show up. As I've met with many of you, it is frequent that I hear stories of, well, my parents weren't believers, but they sent me to church. Those days are gone. Most parents today don't even want to drop their kids off at church uh, to, to, to participate in activities so that they might go out on a date or something like that. They just don't even want their kids anywhere near us. I'm not particularly saying that's fault. In fa- our fault. In fact, in a minute, I'm going to help you understand why it's not. But I'll tell you what won't work in our culture for reaching people with the gospel is more invitations just to go to church. 
What will work with people is invitations to sit around our table, to experience our growth groups, to see our families pray together, or do family devotions together before bed, or or to see a group of people in a growth group genuinely seeking to follow and obey God. Don't get me wrong, the message never changes. 2 Timothy 3 and 4 is clear that no matter how bad the world gets, the word of God is sufficient for the work of the ministry. But the days are gone when we could just invite people to church and they were likely to go. Let me see if I can explain where we are as a culture. And I'm going to give credit to James Gleason for this incredible synopsis of the world we live in today. The message of much of the Bible is a pre-Christian culture. It is a culture that was not affected by the results of Christianity, as most of Western culture, which we experience, has. Pre-Christian cultures look like this. They often have many gods. Those gods are very angry Uh, The world is a dangerous place. The gods must be appeased by sacrifice, even child sacrifice if necessary. We see that all over Scripture. Of course, uh, we have our own form of child sacrifice uh, on the altar today. But, But the gods must be appeased. The world is a terrifying, spiritually charged place, and people feel attacked by spiritual forces outside of their control. There is what we call henotheism prevalent in the Bible where there's the God of these people in this location and the God of these people in that location and and all of these gods are angry and just using people. Of course, then Jesus comes, the gospel spreads, and we end up with where America was even, let's say, 50 or 40 years ago, where we live in a Christian culture. Now, this does not mean to say that that everybody who says they're a Christian was a Christian. It is to say that we lived in a culture that was affected by Judeo-Christian beliefs. And so that culture generally has a belief in a God. 50 years ago, if you had asked Christians, or people in general, not Christians, is there a God, they would have said yes. The universe in a Judeo-Christian ethic, in a Christian culture, is arranged and controlled by God. The commandments that God gives in his word are for the order and peace of society. And so we put them up in places like courthouses and government buildings and on statues God reveals himself uh, through the Bible, even for people who aren't Christians going to court, swearing in with your hand on a Bible, or a president being sworn in with their hand on a Bible was a common thing because this one God who orders things for people's good, who uh, reveals himself through the Bible, and peace comes to people by obeying and worshiping God. That was the culture of America since its founding. And in that culture, you can invite people to church and they'll go. As I've said, I've heard stories from many people of, well, I used to walk down to church or I would go with a neighbor or my parents would drop me off. In that world, you can have a quick four-point conversation with somebody. Maybe it's the four spiritual laws, which aren't that great to start with, but, uh, or, or some other conversation that, hey, God loves you, you've done some things wrong, but he wants to rescue you from your sin, and if you'll just trust him, he'll save you, all of which is true. And that might connect some dots for them that already existed in their mind. 
And they go, hey, that is true. And if that's what the God of the Bible, because I believe in this God, lowercase g, and I believe in the Bible, and I believe that he's good, and you've just connected the dots for me, and I'll believe. And, and that happened, and that's wonderful. And sometimes it still happens. But that story is becoming more and more rare. Stories more like Rosaria Butterfields, where, where people were invited into homes and lives before being invited to church are much, much more common. Those days, they're gone. They're not here anymore. What do we live in? We live in a post-Christian culture, and here's what a post-Christian culture does. A post-Christian culture defines itself against the past. A post-Christian culture is devoted to deconstructing the commands and prohibitions of the, the Christian culture that existed before it. This is why we see, uh, like in Arizona, people being sworn in on children's books, or uh, why we see this great uh, revolt against the Ten Commandments being in a courthouse. Our culture no longer exists believing in a God who is good and reveals himself through the Bible. Our culture is, 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 is existing against all of that. And it's seeking to deconstruct all of that and to remove every sign possible of it. Authority and identity are not found in God or in a book that he wrote, but they are found in the individual. I have the authority to create my own identity and define myself. I get to determine whether I'm male or female, man or woman, and that could even change today if I want it to. And, that, and any authority that challenges that autonomy and self-identity must be destroyed. And culture, what the culture believes is right and wrong, is the ultimate authority and anything that threatens it must be destroyed. Does this make sense of the world around you? Does this make sense of what you see when you turn the TV on? It certainly does to me. And again, to be clear, the Bible is still sufficient. Read 2 Timothy 3 and 4. 2 Timothy 3 is, is clearly a statement of what our culture is like. And chapter 4 is clearly a statement of the sufficiency of God's word. But, but we can't go about things the way we used to. Just saying, hey, you should go to church and think my, people might go to church. I think what we need to do now is we need to invite people with, and usually not so much just with me to church, but invite people to have a meal with me in my home. Invite people to, uh, to, to, to have a, how about this? There's a, I learned this this week. I was so excited. The church, this might not be revolutionary to you, but I, I was so excited. The church has a block party kit with like a canopy and a cooler and, and lawn games and stuff. I, the weather's not so good right now, but man, put it on your calendar today to reserve the block party kit and have a block party. Have a barbecue in your front yard. Invite neighbors, even if they want to be socially distant. That's fine. Everybody can bring their barbecues out front and spend time talking together. It happened on my street because this, the... Um, uh, there was a parade of like police cars and, and fire engines and things like that that went down our street. And like every neighbor came out and sat out waiting for it and talked. And I heard repeatedly afterwards how, how good of a time people had getting to know the neighbors. We've, been, we've received invitations since then from some of our neighbors as we've sought to do things that were hospitable. You can be hospitable even if you can't be in the same home. Uh, my neighbor's brother died and we left flowers on their front door. They're trying to be socially distant. 
assistant. Uh, What followed that was a thank you card and an invitation to their house to spend time with them as as, uh, as soon as things clear up. I'm so excited to be able to go there and spend time with them when that, when that happens. But people aren't so much going to, to go to things, but they might go with things. To, they might go to things with you, is what I'm trying to say. So you might be able to have dinner with somebody in your home, maybe more than once. And then maybe they might come to your growth group, especially if your growth group's willing to do things that are simply for the sake of inviting outsiders in. And then it might turn into an invitation to church. And it might turn into an opportunity about the gospel. It might turn into a conversation that looks like, hey, I got a question for you. Uh, You know I'm a Christian. What do you think it means to be a Christian? And when they tell you and they're wrong, say something like, oh, that's neat. Thanks for sharing that with me. But that's not really what I understand a Christian to be. Can I share with you what it means to be a Christian? If you want to talk about sin and the seriousness of sin, don't point a finger at them. Confess your own sin to them. What, what, if, what if the world experienced uh, the reality and the seriousness of sin, not because of our stone throwing at them, but because of our willingness to confess our need for a Savior? It's not that they're bad and need Jesus, though that's true. It's that I'm bad and need Jesus which is equally true. Hospitality seeks to make friends of strangers and family of friends, family of God in particular. Uh, Somebody offered hospitality to me uh, on uh, um, Halloween. We went over to Ryan and Katie Davenport's house and uh, had a great time with them that night. And Ryan and I were sitting there playing uh, cribbage, right? Uh, Never played cribbage before. Ryan was teaching me cribbage, and he had an opportunity to share uh, with me some of his story of, of how they came uh, to know Jesus. And I've asked Ryan to come and share uh, with us of that story today. I think, I don't know if that's muted or not. Right. We'll, we'll find, find out. out. Are we on? Can you hear me okay? All right, well, uh, yeah, for some of you who don't know me, <clears throat> my name's Ryan Davenport. My family and I are new to Walla Walla as a about a year, a little over a year and a half ago. Um, so yeah, but definitely appreciate the hospitality and just the welcoming that we've received from Trinity. Uh, we've been very comfortable here and just appreciate uh, the reach out that you guys have done for us as kind of, kind of part of our move here. And we've just, uh, it's been a blessing to us as this time. So I can't go into full like overview of my, my conversion because I'll be here for like an hour and a half. Um, but I will tell you what a role hospi- uh, hospitality played for me. Uh, especially with with, uh, with some of my baggage coming into uh, the Christian life. So I'll start at the beginning uh, real quick. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or really in a religious home, period. And in fact, the first 30 years of my life, I've pretty much built up religious walls that are these, you know, these walls about religion that just said it's kind of for the, those people over there. It's I didn't see any way that, that religion or Christianity was going to actually make my life better, I actually saw it as something that would probably take away my life. And I think that really shows where my hope would have been placed um, uh, here in this world. So anyway, 2006, my wife and I uh, moved to Spokane. And you don't see it at the time, but we can clearly see how God placed us uh, in the neighborhood that we did. Um, It was so many crazy circumstances of how we wound up, where we wound up. 
but what was interesting is we were in this neighborhood, and right next door to us are these Christian people. Uh, across the street are these Christian people. There was one way in and out of my neighborhood, and it was right past a gospel-centered, you know, Christ-preaching church. Um, and so there were just these things all around us that, that were, were going to become a big part of our story, big picture. But our story as a hospitality pertains really begins with just people who I might have viewed, and they might have viewed me completely differently, but it all opened up with, like I told Logan, it was progressive dinners. It was invitations to do um, a video, like an outside movie one night. It was um, opportunities to set out front in our lawns because we all had kids at similar ages and just play out front. Maybe that extends to a barbecue or a fire pit. And I think what was interesting for me was <clears throat> watching these relationships and seeing these families and these individuals, and I kind of knew what I thought Christianity was, I think what the first 30 years of my life had told me religious people were like and Christians particularly were like, and I'm getting to see something completely different. And I couldn't put my finger on the attractiveness to it, um, um, but I definitely noticed there was something different. I, I felt like their hope and maybe their joy, the things that were continually like letting me down in my own life, it just seemed like something was, was not the same between me and them. And then we, we, we actually wound up attending this church. It was right up and down the road. God, again, was kind of working in our life, and we have these people around us that are witnessing, witnessing to us, really, without saying a word. It was just the way they were living their life, um, just in our neighborhood. And then we start attending this church, and we meet the pastor, one of the pastors there. And within probably four or five months of attending the church a few times, I come home from work one day, and my wife says, hey, the pastor invited us to his house for church tonight. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, you, you didn't say yes, did you? She's like, I did, I did. And, of course, the night she chose was the uh, national championship game of the, the NCAA basketball tournament that year. And if you get to know me, you'll know that is a fairly sacred time of the year for me, uh, college basketball. And, of course, I am just dreading this time. I'm like, we're going to go to the pastor's house. You are going to... I'm going to, have to listen to hours of preaching, and I'm going to miss the basketball game. And we went to this home, and we had dinner. And again, unbeknownst to me, after the meal, he looks at me and he says, hey, you want to go downstairs and watch the basketball game? And I'm going, I didn't see that coming. And again, we get down, and we have this great conversation just about life, nothing particular, just kids and family and just different things. And I'm waiting for it. I'm just waiting. Okay, when is it going to come? When is, when is the, the preaching going to happen? And, and it never did. We just sat and enjoyed our time together and watched a basketball game. And I remember I finally at that point was like, I'm going to ask him a question. And I said, so what is this whole Christian thing about? You know, I, I, I hear that you say a prayer sometime, and, and then you say, okay, yep, I'm, I'm saved. I'm good. And he says, you know, it sounds easy. This would be the hardest thing you ever do. And that was the extent of our religious conversation that night. But it was something that blossomed and grew. And, of course, there was a lot of ways that God continued to work through me and my wife and our family and things that happened. But I will tell you that I saw in my own life why I was continually discouraged, why I was finding unfulfillment, and why I was looking at people who still struggle, still have their challenges, but they saw the world differently than I saw. And there was an attractiveness that I wasn't able to put my finger on until obviously, <clears throat> coming to faith and seeing Christ and what he's done for my life. So I can tell you through my personal, you know, relationship with Christ, through my own testimony that <clears throat> those little things, God is at work in those. And so I do appreciate 
those, those people being so kind to us. So that's, that's the quick story I had a chance to, to, to share with Logan. And again, thank you for your hospitality and welcoming me, wel welcoming me and my family to Walla Walla. pretty amazing what God can do uh, with a, a willing home, a fire pit, a barbecue, uh, an invitation to dinner and to watch a basketball game. It's kind of where our views, our wrong views of Christianity get deconstructed and right views of Christianity can begin to build up. My story is one of hospitality too. People in the church making space for me in their lives as the son of a single mom. That's not a story for today. But, uh, but Christian hospitality is a tangible way to show the gospel. It's a tangible way to show how God has welcomed us while we were sinners. How he came and lived in, uh, for us and died for us so that he could welcome us in. And what is the appropriate response to that? It is to welcome others. It was uh, kind of struck me this week that COVID has canceled all of our activities that are kind of that come and see opportunities as a church. And as a result, I think hospitality has never been more important in the life of the church for reaching the lost with the gospel. What about COVID though? How do I have people over? Is that safe? Look, I, I'm, I don't know how we navigate all of that. And all of us have to be careful according to where we're at and according to our medical needs. And I'm not calling us to be unloving uh, towards others, if we're cer certainly not if we're sick, and I'm not asking us to be risky with our health necessarily. Maybe we would be risky. But I would say this, that Christians historically have not run away from danger, but run into it. Shortly after Jesus' death in the 200s in Rome under uh, the Emperor Antoine, plague hit the, the it was Italy, uh, North Africa, the Middle East, I mean, just decimated uh, 5,000 people dying in the city of Rome alone. Doctors fleeing the city to go live in homes in the country where they wouldn't be exposed to sickness. And it was Christians who came in and who cared for the sick and for the dying at great personal risk. Why would Christians do something like that? Because if we've trusted in Christ, even if you or I to die because of COVID, all death can do is deliver us to Jesus. But not so for those who don't know Christ. That, that number, no matter what we think politically, of the hundreds of thousands of people dying should cause us to stand up and think about the urgency of the gospel. The Christians came in and cared for the sick. It happened again in the, two, or in the 300s under Cyprian and again in the 400s under Justinian or Justin uh, and the, the, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Interestingly, historian Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, attributes, uh, he shows how there was great and precipitous growth in the church, in those times, that wasn't exclusively, but was largely, uh, can be attributed uh, to people caring for the sick in plagues. Again, I'm not calling us to be irresponsible, but maybe it's just picking one family. That's still allowed. 
one family with which to have over, one family to invite regularly, one family to have a, a, a meal with. Uh, some of our older members, I know you have to be careful, but I think uh, hospitality, not COVID, is an incredible opportunity for you. I've heard several people tell me, you know, I'm getting older and I just can't do all the stuff in the church that I used to do. Oh, it makes me want to praise God. Because if you've got a home and a table and some food in your refrigerator... You have incredible means for ministry, kingdom ministry, gospel ministry. Praise God that you can't do all that you used to do in the church and invite somebody outside of the church. I want you right now, I'm going to pause before I pray to write down the, the name of one family who you are going to not target, but befriend. To, to in, intentionally uh, build a relationship with. To, to plan a block, block party with. Because, see, we don't really own anything. If you have a home, food, money, resources, coffee, tea, whatever, God owns it. We just steward it. And we're to be kingdom stewards. I'm going to leave you with one question. This question is from Gloria Furman. Here it is. What would our hospitality look like if we believed that Jesus' death on the cross was the measure of God's compassion for someone. What would our hospitality look like if we believed that Jesus' death on the cross was the measure of God's compassion for someone? Lord, you have been compassionate to us. You have shown us great hospitality and will continue to do so for eternity. You have called us out of death and into your marvelous light. And you have called us to do the same. And Lord, we, we confess, I think every one of us here would feel that, that the idea of starting up a conversation uh, coldly and blindly with somebody we've never met before to share the gospel with is really, really hard. But Lord, maybe that might be a little easier if we've built a relationship and spent some time with them and cared for them. Lord, may we be a, a church that is uh, willing to invite people, not just to church, but to our homes, into our lives, to see the gospel at work as you're transforming us. That we would be vulnerable and willing to confess our sin and how you've rescued us. But that we would also be a church that seeks to to invite people with, to walk along with us on the journey of following you, and not just to it. We would live our lives not isolated from the church or from others, but together. Lord, may, may we have the patience of Ken and Floyd who are willing to invite for years while Rosaria sorted out what was going on, saw the gospel in action. And, and lived under the truth of your word and even ultimately the conviction of her sin. Father, we thank you today that she knows you. Lord, I pray that we would be a church filled with people who's, who, who are not yet here, who do not net, yet know you, whose story is one of a member of Trinity simply befriended me. Lord, eventually we must speak the gospel. We must tell people about who you are and what you have done for us. But may it start with kindness in the same manner that you have been kind 
to us. And Lord, let us see and experience the great joy that there is in hospitality and making friends and building relationships. Lord, may we also do it as we are commanded without grumbling and that there might be joy in it for us as well. And for those to whom we are hospitable, we ask that it would be for your glory, for the growth of your kingdom, for our joy and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.